If you've been listening to the Weekly Economics podcast for a while, you'll have heard us talk a lot about the climate crisis, from funding a Green New Deal to the future of the climate movement. With the COP26 Global Climate Conference coming up later this year, we're going to spend five episodes this series looking at some of the biggest climate issues. We kicked things off last week with Alice Bell explaining everything you need to know about greenwashing. This week, the conversation is about the climate movement with activists from two generations. The modern environmental movement has been around for over 50 years. And over the last couple, it's been reinvigorated by a new generation of young student climate strikers. We are a wave of change. Together and united, we are unstoppable. We will rise to the challenge. We will hold those who are the most responsible for this crisis accountable. And we will make the world leaders act. We can and we will. These protests are about calling on the government to start tackling the climate crisis in a way that actually reflects severity. And so for that, today tens of thousands of students have been marching, calling for a Green New Deal. Um, this is a radical plan to deliver both social justice and climate justice in this country, but also to stand in solidarity worldwide. After a deadly heat wave swept the western US and Canada, and temperatures in Pakistan soared to a life-threatening 52 degrees last week, how can activists communicate the connection between these events and the climate crisis? Is the new wave of activists more willing to talk about colonialism and capitalism? And what challenges is the climate movement facing today? We've seen these kind of really hot, wet summers and then increasingly mild winters. This is the reality of climate change, right? It's the fact that our grandkids might never build a snowman. Um, or it's the fact that there are places in the UK right now already bracing themselves for potentially losing homes or businesses to flooding this winter. A lot of times the way that climate change is talked about, like especially with the presidential debates, we'll have like, OK, we're going to talk about healthcare now. OK, great. Next topic, climate change. Okay, next topic, race. When in reality, we should be talking about all of these issues within the context of the climate crisis. We have a couple of crises, both of them we have to flatten the curve for. The immediate one is, of course, the pandemic, which we are all dealing with on a, a very personal basis uh, right now with our families and loved ones. But as we exit this crisis, and we will eventually exit this crisis, we cannot go back to normal as we have another severe challenge that we have to deal with, which is uh, the climate degradation, the climate crisis. Welcome to the Weekly Economics Podcast. In this episode, we're hosting a conversation between climate activists across two different generations. One is a 17-year-old climate striker and the other a renowned political economist. What do these different generations have to learn from each other? I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith, recording this podcast from my house. Stay with us. So this week, I'm really pleased to be joined down the line by Anne Pettifor, director of Prime, fellow of the New Economics Foundation and the author of The Case for the Green New Deal. Hi, Anne. Hello. Thanks so much for being with us. 
I'm also really pleased to be joined down the line by Izzy Warren, teenage climate activist and member of the UK Student Climate Network. Hi, Izzy. Hi. Right. So let's dive in. I think it'd be really great to start off by just hearing from each of you about when and how you first got interested in the climate crisis and climate activism. So we'll kick off with you, Anne, and then Izzy, if you want to take the mic. Thanks very much, Aisha. Yes, I think it was in the 1990s when I was working on Jubilee 2000. And I worked with campaigners who were also environmentalists. And it slowly began to dawn on me that this was a looming crisis, almost as severe as the looming financial crisis then. And then in 2000, I joined the New Economics Foundation and worked closely with Andrew Sims on climate and the economy. And then in 2006, I think it was, I went to Schumacher College where there was a gathering organized by Satish Kumar of environmentalists and economists from around the world to discuss the threat and then in 2007-8, I was part of a group uh, mobilized by Colin Hines that came together in my flat, actually, in London regularly to draw up a manifesto, a report, if you like, which we named the Green New Deal and did so deliberately to echo the New Deal of 1933. So that's when I really began active. And then later, I became the organizer of the church's climate change campaign, Operation NOAA, and tried to mobilize around the churches for the 2005 Copenhagen conference. And then eventually uh, I wrote the book, The Case for the Green New Deal, in 2019. Brilliant. So you've been busy then. Uh, Izzy, what about you? So I got involved in the climate movement, not from sort of the political or economic standpoint. So that's definitely become sort of my main focus and driving force now. I got involved because I was really into wildlife and nature and wildlife conservation. And I really want to do something. Um, I want to be a conservationist. I want to work with wild animals, but I live in London. Um, There's not a huge amount in the way of wildlife here. And I was getting increasingly frustrated, feeling very isolated from any form of like real activism because I could go online and post on social media, but there's only so much that does. And I wanted to do something tangible and real. And I'd seen sort of in the news about the Australian climate strikes. And I'd actually never heard of Greta. I'd never seen anything before this, but I saw the Australian school walkouts. And I was like, oh my God, we need to do that here. We need to bring that to the UK. And coincidentally, a couple of other teenagers in London were thinking the same thing at that point in time. And we sort of all managed to connect at the right point. And I reached out to the right people on social media right before the very first climate strike that we had here in London and across the UK. And so that was sort of when I got involved in climate activism and seeing the power that mass mobilizations and collective action can have and my work in the UK Student Climate Network and the Youth Strike Movement sort of snowballed from that point. Brilliant. Thanks both. Just coming back to you, Anne, I know you mentioned the Green New Deal group there, the original group that you were a founding member of. And I know that group looked at the financial crisis and the climate crisis together in a very interlinked way that was quite novel at the time. So could you talk a little bit more about what your work has shown you about the connections between the climate 
and our global economic system. And then Izzy, it would be really great to hear your response to that and to what extent you see the climate crisis as an economic problem too. Yeah. Now, I think I became frustrated with the green movement. I was aware way back in the 90s that, you know, there were thousands, literally hundreds of thousands of activists in the green movement, but that they were atomized, if you like, separated, doing their thing, and that simultaneously they were preoccupied with, A, behavioral change and also community change you know, recycle, reuse, and so on. And they were overwhelmingly concerned, and rightly so, with the ecosystem, with wildlife, and treated the economy as someone else's problem, really, or as something that one should leave to those chaps in pinstripe suits in the City of London or in the Treasury. And for me, there was such a close connection between the economy and the ecosystem And I wasn't the only one to see that. Satish Kumar saw that. Colin Hines and others saw that too. That's why we came together. But it was really interesting because we didn't agree with each other. We had enormous arguments and we found, you know, the struggle to bring two silos into the same room and get them to work together is just extraordinarily difficult. We found ourselves, you know, having quite ferocious arguments because we had to learn to understand each other. I had to learn so much more about the ecosystem, and my colleagues had to learn in particular about the monetary system. And most people understand and you know, have, are engaged with the tangible parts of the economy, the bits that we touch, you know, the shopping, the paying of taxes, all of those tangible things that we know about on a day-to-day basis. The intangible economy, which is the monetary system and the financial system, has a massive impact on the ecosystem. And it's only recently that Greens have really begun to understand understand that Bill McKibben's work in the United States and the work of the Rainforest Network that's been measuring, assessing the amount of loans that banks give to fossil fuel companies that if those fossil fuel companies were not financed by the banking and financial system, they'd not be able to do what they do. So if we think of finance as a sort of giant tap, which creates credit almost effortlessly and then channels that credit into fossil fuel companies, which in turn emit greenhouse gas emissions, we need to understand that we actually have to turn off the tap as well as tackle the fossil fuel companies as well as address the greenhouse gas emissions. And making sense of that was really not an easy thing for us to do as a group, but we thrashed it out over a year and produced our report at the height of the financial crisis. And that fell as a sort of a bit of a lead balloon, really. I mean, picked up by a few prominent characters, but it didn't go very far until in 2018, the Justice Democrats in the United States we're looking for a program, a policy program for AOC, for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for her primary campaign against a Wall Street Democrat in New York. Only then did the idea of the Green New Deal begin to take off, of course, because she, she's such a brilliant advocate and star. So, you know, it's been quite a struggle, and I think it's still a struggle, but it's one that, you know, I think people like Izzy already grasps without having to have done all the, waded through all the years of stuff that we've waded through to get there, you know, and that's very exciting. Yeah, I mean, is that the case, Izzy? Do you feel like that kind of analysis is 
I guess, mainstreamed among the people you organize with? I think it is much more than I think among older generations. My generation's grown up in aftermath and during the financial crash. I mean, we've seen our whole lives that capitalism is an inherently exploitive and unjust system. And we know that the climate crisis is also unjust. And it's easier for us, I think, to draw those connections. And I think that's something that we've tried really hard to make sure we are talking about and making sure that we are framing this as an economic crisis and a political crisis. And we are proposing and platforming and trying to push for ideas like the Green New Deal, which has been one of our demands from the very beginning of this movement. I think it's difficult because when teenagers start talking about economics, people tend to switch off. They sort of assume that we don't know what we're talking about. And to an extent, they're right. I'm not an economist, but it doesn't take an economist to realize that there is something fundamentally wrong here. It doesn't take an economist to realize that banks shouldn't be funding fossil fuels. It doesn't take an economist to realize that capitalism is fueling the climate crisis we're in. And so I think because of all of the work that economists have done in the past and other climate activists have done in the past to sort of build those connections it's much easier for us than just go out and say, this is an economic crisis, we need economic solutions. Yeah. But I think, Izzy, you know, the fact is that we really ought not to be embarrassed about not knowing economics because so many economists don't understand economics. Um, one of the mm-hmm. things that was a real big shock to discover is that economists are not taught about money banking in the financial system when they do their courses at universities. And in a way, I think this is part of a conspiracy to keep them ignorant. But it means that they too were unprepared for the great financial crisis in 2007-8. They didn't know it was going to happen. You know, they were absolutely stunned when it happened. So I think we ought not to be too modest about this. But I also think that economists go out of their way to make economics sound very complicated and highbrow and beyond ordinary people's comprehension. They deliberately use a language which is obscuring. And I suppose this is also, I don't know what you think about this, Izzy, but I think also that scientists, climate scientists, have been too cautious, have been too quiet, have been too modest in their projections. I mean, I think, as Ayesha said at the beginning of this podcast, the recent rise in temperatures has taken a lot of scientists by surprise. In other words, they've underestimated the scale of this threat. And that has made it very difficult for people like you and me to you know, persuade the wider public to prepare and adapt to this crisis. Do you agree? Yeah, I really do. And I think what you were saying about economists and the language that they use is also true of climate scientists. Um And everything is spoken about in terms that are so extraordinarily unrelatable. Like the best example of this is the 1.5 degrees of warming. That is an insignificant number to 99.9% of the population. It means absolutely nothing. Because 1.5 degrees, that doesn't change what clothes you're wearing, let alone the fate of the planet. And the way that we talk about these things, we talk about them as these distant projections. We don't Mm. talk about it as a reality. And even when we're experiencing the impacts of the climate crisis, it's always 
you see this now, this is what the future is going to be like. We never take a moment, I think, to pause and just go, look at the world we are living in right now. We keep making it seem like a distant thing, and it's not. This is affecting people's lives right now. And unless we start focusing on that, it's very difficult to get people to care about stuff that we're saying is decades in the future when people have problems to deal with today. Yeah. But I think that shows that we both have challenges, or we have challenges on both fronts, perhaps. I regard it as a challenge to translate economic gobbledygook into understandable language for want of a better word, ordinary people, for people who are not economists. But it's clear that we have to do the same for the scientists, the climate scientists. You know, We have a translation job to do, and it's a difficult job because it has to be done accurately, and it has to be evidence-based, but it has to be communicatable. And um, the horrifying thing is that I don't think, as you say, Izzy, I don't think people really understand the gravity of this. They look at those fires and think, well, that happens, you know, in odd places. It won't happen here. And I just think what we're doing today is communicating. And that is really the most important thing we can do is communicate effectively. And we're not doing that successfully enough yet. I mean, yeah, just to jump in, that's kind of the whole purpose of this podcast really is to make so many of these issues, whether it's climate or migration or or anything else, which is kind of, as you say, intentionally complicated by the economists and scientists who present it much more accessible and translatable to the people directly impacted so that we can organize them. I want to talk about the environmental movement at large a bit and come to you Izzy, on the question, which I think feels true for me, media coverage of the new wave of youth climate activists has often kind of remarked that you're, you know, a more diverse group, more willing to talk about structural issues. And it's certainly been my experience of working with young people in the climate movement that the level of kind of insight and awareness of issues of intersectionality, issues of kind of race and colonialism and the historical legacies of those things have really been kind of foregrounded in a way that I've never seen before. And I've actually seen at older, kind of more established levels of the movement, if you will, at times, those issues kind of being willfully ignored to the point of conflict. So I guess just wondering is if that rings true for you, could you talk a little bit about your understanding of the links between climate change and colonialism? I think what you've said is true to an extent. I think we've definitely tried to talk about these connections, to make these links and to make it clear that these are the root cause of the climate crisis. Fossil fuels are a very small part of it in actuality. I think we still have a long, long, long way to go as a movement. There is still a huge amount of racism in the youth climate movement the media still chooses to platform very specific activists, almost all of whom are white. It is by no means perfect in any way, shape or form. But I think there is, at least in terms of the way we talk about the issues and we talk about the climate crisis, there is more emphasis on it, on talking about the role of colonialism and environmental racism and imperialism. And I think a lot of that is because we have less to lose. We are not an NGO that has to appeal to a wide range of people and make it seem apolitical and friendly and non-threatening. Our power as a movement comes from being angry. It's about our authentic anger and frustration and fear. 
And I think that puts us in a position where we can talk about these things. And these things need to be talked about. Colonialism and the climate crisis are very, very, very linked. And the media tends to try and twist the narratives around a lot of this stuff. One thing that I get asked constantly in interviews is why we are targeting the UK government, why we're not talking about China and India and these countries that have what appear to be larger carbon footprints. And A, that's not true. The carbon footprints per capita are still lower. But B, those carbon emissions are coming to produce the stuff that we use here, um, to produce the products that we buy really cheaply at the expense of workers in those countries. And we've got a historical burden in the UK to pay for the decades and decades and decades of carbon emissions that we were producing long before any other country. We were the first country to have an industrial revolution to start burning fossil fuels, and we need to be the first country to stop doing that. But that's not enough. We also need to be supporting these other countries to decarbonize in a way that is fair and just and doesn't put the global south at yet another disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, Anna, I want to bring you in on that same question um, around the kind of what your analysis is of the current movement, specifically along those lines. But yeah, it's really true what you say, Izzy, and I think it's often used to shut down debate, this idea of, well, why are you so concerned about this country when look over there, they're doing this. And I think that's a really kind of fantastic way of coming back on that. But yeah, and where do you see the movement today? Do you feel like there has been a shift in that direction towards more addressing of these links between climate change and colonialism and uh, racial injustice, etc? To be honest, you know, I mean, I think the movement is probably more aware and the fact that this is included in the discussion is is welcome. But we only have to look at the distribution of vaccines through this pandemic to know that words are meaningless if we can't transform them into actions which actually restore justice I'm South African born. Um, My family is in South Africa. And I'm watching as they are now hit by this new variant and have no vaccines or have not sufficient vaccines. And vaccines that they do have are really poorly distributed. So the injustice of the total system is the thing that I don't think we have yet faced up to fully. And the reason, I think, is because it's so hard to do. The fact is that the reason vaccines are not available to millions of people in Africa, Asia, and Latin America is because of the nature of the international financial system and the global economy, globalization, right? Because we are effectively governed by big pharmaceutical corporations. They decide who gets a vaccine and how much to pay for it, right? We don't decide that. Our governments may subsidize that. And we, the taxpayers, may certainly be subsidizing and supporting that process, but we don't decide who distributes those vaccines and who gets them. And, you know, I don't think the voice in this country for greater fairness in the distribution of vaccines has been strong enough. And, you know, the pandemic is an ecological crisis. It's one of the many that we're now going to face. And I think the reason for that is we don't fully grasp how detached are those powerful institutions that are governing us. They're not our governments. Our governments are pathetically weak 
in the face of big pharmaceutical global corporations and the laws that they've introduced, the trade laws they've introduced, which protect them from any government intervention, which protect them from uh, making any changes to their prices and to their profits and to their capital gains. And for me, I wouldn't call this colonialism. This is imperialism, and it's a new kind of imperialism. And I just wish that we had a grasp of the scale of it. Often when we talk about A, the economy, and B, the climate, we talk about that again and back to the tangible thing, the thing that we experience on a day-to-day basis that we know best that is around us, that's within the boundaries that we live within, whereas in fact the economy operates beyond those boundaries and independently of those boundaries as part of an international system that is designed to suit the interests of what I call wealth or the 1%. And if we leave that international system intact and we don't go after it and we don't demand its transformation, then all the efforts we're making here on the ground, even all the kind of good intentions we have about people in poor countries, just mean nothing because we're part of an international structure which structurally divides them, which structurally penalizes them. And I know that sounds really grandiose and like a huge thing, and it is a huge thing. But I think it's possible for us to to both understand the nature of the international system and challenge it and transform it. And the thing that inspires me is the fact that when we launched Jubilee 2000 and the New Economics Foundation, of course, was a big part of that. You know, everybody said to us, oh, global debt, you know, the debt of the poorest countries, sovereign debt, multilateral debt, bilateral debt. These are far too complicated for ordinary people to understand. And anyway, it's a global issue. You know, there's nothing we can do about it here. And we argued, no, we could do an awful lot about it. And the thing that constantly inspires me is that we mobilized a global movement that challenged the IMF, the World Bank, the international financial institutions, big banks, creditors and cancelled $100 billion of debt. And that was built on people understanding the scale of the threat and the scale of the problem and understanding that it was a problem well beyond the tangible world that they inhabited. So so I am optimistic in a sense, but I do want us to grasp that this thing is, is, <laughs> is evil, actually. It's an institution, it's a system, an international system that's been constructed almost entirely without our consent. And that governs and determines whether or not people in poor countries can get access to something like a life-saving vaccine in a pandemic caused by the invasion of wildlife habitats. I think you're completely right. And I think that we can do both and we have to do both. As you say, we have to understand the kind of structural overarching systems that we're dealing with and also get tangible in how we deal with it. And just to come on to that, I want to talk about tactics. I know we don't have that much time left, so I'm going to race us ahead. Izzy, you've taken part in protests and sit-ins and some of which directed at the Science Museum, which I'd love to hear a little bit about. For both of you, really, I'd like to hear about the tactics that you've taken and why you've taken them. So Izzy, direct action, I think it seems to be important to you if you could say something about that. And then, Anne, if you could talk, if it's right to say that your work has often been in the policy space, I'd love to hear about the relationship between your work and and direct action. And then just to throw something on the top there, I'd really like to hear what your read is of kind of Extinction Rebellion and the kind of tactics that they've used and, you know, civil disobedience. And obviously there's been a lot of critique around that. But if you have time to just sprinkle on some analysis of that, that would be great. Um, yeah, I, I do 
use protest and direct action and mass mobilizations. And those are tactics that the youth strike movement has been using a lot. Basically, up until two weeks ago, we almost exclusively did big protests. We had the monthly climate strikes, and then we had the September 20th strike, where we had 100,000 people on the streets of London, 350,000 people on the streets of the UK. And then we had COVID, and that stopped, which was a bit of a shock, I think. We were like, where do we go from here now? We had one tactic. Our entire movement is based around a single tactic that we're no longer allowed to do. And I think we were also beginning to get disheartened in the idea of mass mobilizations because the September 20th strike globally was framed as this tipping point. This day, we're going to get millions of people on the streets. And we did. We had 7 million people taking action for climate change on one day. And then the world leaders will wake up and listen. And suddenly, we'll have change. And all of these laws will get passed and everything will be great. And our movement will have achieved something. I think that was quite a naive belief of us because we had 7 million people on the streets, but then nothing happened as a result of it. And so to have that and then the pandemic, we were like, where do we go from here now? And I've been working on a campaign targeting the Science Museum in London over the past couple of months who have a new exhibition about carbon capture and climate change that is sponsored by none other than the oil giant Shell. And we'd tried all of the tactics that we'd been told we should do instead of striking, instead of the big disruptive protests, instead of the civil disobedience. We were like, okay, we'll give it a shot. We did the petitions. We did the writing letters and emails and having a protest on a weekend. We called a boycott of it. And we were still ignored. And so we made the decision to try and stage an occupation of the Science Museum, which sadly, we were not able to complete because the Science Museum called the police and 40 police officers came to arrest 20 teenagers and scientists. But for us, that's sort of the most direct action we've taken as a group. We've got a complicated relationship with Extinction Rebellion within the school strike movement, I think. I think I personally, and I know a lot of my fellow young climate activists will agree with me, don't think arrest should be a goal of anything. It excludes a lot of people. It makes light of a system that is incredibly dangerous for a lot of people. Um, And there's a lot of privilege linked into that. And so... For us as young people, like we've never done actions where our goal is to get arrested or get as many people arrested as possible. That's why we made the decision to end our occupation. And there's also political differences with Extinction Rebellion. I think particularly their message of being beyond politics is something that we've had a lot of disagreement with because while we as a group are nonpartisan, we've never endorsed any candidates in elections, we won't advocate for any specific party, the climate crisis is inherently extremely political. It's a crisis caused by political systems and claiming as a movement to be beyond politics, it diminishes the role that so many 
of these factors have played in creating the climate crisis. And you can't have real solutions without looking at that. Thanks so much, Izzy. That was really, really helpful. And do you want to come in on that one? Yes, I first want to salute Izzy and her team and because she's absolutely right. This is very political. This is about power and it's about who is exercising this power, these enormous powers that are destroying the planet. Can I just say that I also sympathize with Izzy because, you know, we had mobilized enormous protests against the G7, the G8, and also the IMF and the World Bank. And then 9-11 happened. And after that, it just wasn't possible to do anything that implied violence or resistance in any way. It just kind of neutralized us for a very long time. But for me, what I think has been most effective is what I've learned about tactics is that you have to, first of all, have a very sound strategy and your strategy in turn has to be based on sound evidence. And what we did with Jubilee 2000, for example, was decide that we wouldn't attack the IMF and the World Bank, which are the bureaucratic institutions governed by the powerful, but that instead we would aim our protest at the powerful, the shareholders of the IMF and the World Bank. And when we changed the target of our protest to aim it at the ones actually making the decisions, that changed the nature of the protest as well. And then we used education and information and advocacy and mobilization, actually, both popular mobilization. We found ourselves having to align with celebrities and so on, which we found very difficult. (laughs) That's another story. But mainly what it was was public education. If I can just quickly tell the story of the woman who wrote to the Treasury about debt cancellation and, and who wrote on a pink piece of paper with a bunch of roses in the corner and asked a very complicated question about the negotiations. And the Treasury official said to me, how the hell did this woman know about our negotiations with Uganda on the debt deal? And I said, well, because she's not stupid and we're not stupid and this is not rocket science, you know. We've explained it. And so we have spent we spent a lot of time on education, on, on understanding. It isn't just policy, it's, it's education, it's giving people information, but above all, it's arming people with arguments, arming people with ways in which to tackle the kind of denial that's coming from the powerful. So the combination of that as part of our strategy to decide, you know, where are the powerful? Right now, for me, the powerful and not even our politicians, although they collude with the powerful, but the powerful are companies like BlackRock, big, powerful institutions who are now in charge of all our pensions, huge sums of money, and are using that to fuel greenhouse gas emissions. But the problem is they are out there in the stratosphere. You know, they're almost beyond reach because they've designed themselves into being beyond reach. But on the other hand, they massively depend on the state and taxpayers. So right now, my particular beef is that every central bank that is bailing out, that is nationalizing Wall Street, if you like, and the city of London, can only do so because in Britain, for example, it's backed by 30 million taxpayers, people like you and me, who have no choice but to pay our taxes, right? It's about time that we demanded that the central bank stop bailing out those institutions on our behalf, but instead demand terms and conditions of them. But we don't understand we have that power because we think the central bank is this powerful thing over there, which is very complicated, nobody understands and so on. And the bailouts of these very powerful big corporations is almost invisible to us. We've got to make it visible 
and we have to demand that as taxpayers we have rights. But I want us to start thinking about the public institutions that underpin these huge, powerful corporations and sustain and support them, understand that they're our institutions, that we're the taxpayers that keep these shows on the road, and that we therefore can make them accountable and demand that they accept certain terms and conditions. I mean, again, yeah, it seems utterly crucial that that's what we have to do. Just to wrap up, I I wanted to kind of look to the future. It would be really great to hear from both of you. Firstly, what you kind of think the biggest challenges are that the movement are kind of facing in stopping the climate emergency. And then just to end on, I guess, a more positive note, one piece of advice that you'd like to give either to the older generation um, for you, Izzy, or, or the younger generation for you, Anne, of climate activists going forward. I think the biggest barrier we're facing is also the biggest opportunity we have, and that is the current pandemic. I think it's very difficult right now to get people to care about climate change because I think there has been a failure to draw the links between COVID and climate change and generally health and disease and climate change. I think it's difficult to get people to care about a future crisis when we're in a current crisis. And I think when we start to see restrictions easing up and COVID fading away a little bit in people's memories and minds, it's going to be hard, I think, to get people to then be instantly ready to start fighting the next crisis. I think people are just going to be like, whoa, we need some time to just not think about any of this, which I get. But I also think we've got a chance here. COVID has shown that a lot of the systems that we just sort of accepted as being there don't work. We've got to rebuild the economy now. We've got to rebuild society. And if we do it right, if we do it with climate change in mind, we can create new systems. We can build back in a way that is better for the climate crisis. And so this is probably one of the best opportunities we're ever going to have for climate action. And I, one piece of advice to the older generation, I think it would be listen to us and not in a tokenistic way. We don't know everything. We've got a lot to learn, but we do know why we're fighting for this. We're not in this fight to be used as the token young people. We're here because we have ideas and thoughts and solutions of our own, and those are valuable and important. A lovely note to end on. Thanks so much, Izzy. Anne, what what say you? Well, I say that's very good advice for my generation, because not only do young people inspire us with their ideas and their thoughts and so on, but also with their courage. And it has been extraordinary, and it is what keeps me going. And I thank young people that have mobilized over this period. It's been extraordinarily inspiring. I want to end on a positive note, and it is this, that no one predicted or very few people predicted the pandemic. It arrived, boom, of a sudden. And people responded in the most extraordinary way. People and institutions responded. And for me, what that shows is that the capabilities and the capacity is there and the humanity is there and the way in which people behaved through this crisis has been extraordinary and been completely contrary to what we've been told people are like, really greedy, selfish, self-concerned and so on and so on. And when actually many different things happened and institutions like the Treasury behaved very differently too. 
Now, I think Izzy is right that we're going back into, oh, let's get back to the old normal. But when the next crisis strikes, and we know it's in the pipeline, and we know it could be on the scale of what's happening in the Western United States right now or Pakistan, you know, I expect that we will find that all of the work that Izzy and young people are doing now and that scientists have done and that the Green Movement has done actually is embedded somewhere in there and will actually enable us to face that next big challenge. Right now, people want to just escape from the cage that has been COVID. But I think what I'm taking inspiration from was the fact that overnight we changed behaviors, we changed practice, we changed systems, we changed the economy, we nationalized Wall Street, we nationalized the railways. You know, care became a really important part of everyday life, not valued in financial terms, but certainly valued by the community. So I think, you know, humanity is capable of behaving very differently and reacting. And that gives me hope. And me. Thank you both so much. It feels almost criminal to end this conversation, but I know that you both got lives to live. But I hope that you will continue to chat beyond this because I think that there's so much to be exchanged um, and also just to be learned from everything that you've both been doing. It's absolutely astounding to me. Unfortunately, that is all we've got time for on this week's Weekly Economics podcast. Anne Pettifor, thanks so much for joining me. If people want to find out more about your work, which I'm sure they do, where can they go? What should they read? So could they read the case for the Green New Deal? And my website is Prime Economics, Policy Research in Macroeconomics. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Anne. And Izzy Warren, massive thanks to you as well. It's been an absolute privilege. If people want to find out more about you, where can they go? What should they read? I'm on social media and I sort of talk about what I'm doing on there and the UK Student Climate Network on social media and UKSCN London social media as well. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. That is it for today's Weekly Economics podcast. We'll be back soon with more. If you've enjoyed this episode, please tell someone about it. As always, you can drop us a line with your comments and questions. We're at Neff on Twitter. The Weekly Economics podcast is brought to you by the New Economics Foundation, produced by Becky Malone and researched by Margaret Welsh. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. Stay safe. Stay safe.